He sees patients from the perspective of a physiologist, family medicine, and osteopathic manipulative medicine trained physician. He has read and reread the writings of A.T. Still and the history of osteopathic medicine, incorporating these into his practice. He and his wife, Dr. Bonnie Gintis, are the hosts of the podcast Osteopathy Unplugged, an audio textbook of osteopathic medicine. Please enjoy this very insightful conversation with Dr. Stephen Paulus Dio. Welcome to the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Our guest today is an American osteopathic physician who has over 30 years of clinical experience. He is board certified in osteopathic manipulative medicine and has a master's degree in muscle physiology. He has taught workshops on osteopathic clinical philosophy in Canada, France, Germany, Austria, and Finland for over 15 years. He has a unique voice in the osteopathic profession, integrating the history, philosophy, and clinical practice of osteopathy into a teachable system. He takes the principles of osteopathy and makes them clinically relevant. He emphasizes the essential importance of combining anatomic accuracy with perceptual precision. With his wife, Bonnie Gintis, D.O., they have produced the podcast, which I am very much a fan of, Osteopathy Unplugged, interweaving the philosophy of osteopathy with clinical relevance and reveal their inner vision into the real world workings of how to practice and live the philosophy of osteopathy. So thank you very much for being with us this evening, Dr. Stephen Paulus. Oh, you're very welcome. It's an honor to be here with you. Yes, thank you so much. And would you like to call? Would you like me to call you Steve for the rest of the podcast, or Dr. Paulus, or? Well, if you're going to call me Dr. Paulus, and I'm going to call you Dr. Green. We're <laughs> call, at, at this point in time, you and I are colleagues, and so once you become a colleague, then we're on a first name first name basis. Okay. So I would prefer uh, you calling me Steve, and if it's okay with you, can I call you Ben? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we have a little different format for this podcast, Dr. P or Steve. Steve and I have prepared nine questions related to osteopathy and osteopathic philosophy. So I'm very excited to ask those questions to you and hear your response. I have a wide variety of interests. Most of my interests outside of medicine are uh, being with friends, uh, hanging out with my wife. I've got two grandchildren. I also uh, do a lot outside. I, I, I ride my bike, I paddleboard, I cross-country ski. But if I was going to pick one unique thing that I do that would kind of attract attention, I love board games. And I especially like European board games. And some of the best board games in the world are German board games. And they're not the board games that we used to uh, kind of think of traditionally in the United States, things like Monopoly or the Game of Life or Risk or even game, complicated games like chess. They're very interesting, intricate social games. And our current favorite right now, with my wife and I, is a game called Wingspan, which is uh, deals with birds and ornithology. And it's an incredibly fun game. Hmm. What's, what's the objective of the game? To, to um, build your aviary, basically. And you will build your aviary in different ecosystems either in a wetlands or a forest environment or a prairie. And then you, um, you nest your birds, they reproduce, they make eggs, they have to have food to be able to expand. And it's a, 
totally interesting and fun game. So you'll learn about birds of North America while you're doing it. And it's incredibly, it's challenging and fun at the same time. Yeah, and so, so, so what I love about board games, it's kind of the modern version of what my parents used to do is they'd play bridge. And so instead, my wife, Bonnie, and I get all our friends together and we play board games. And it's, it's great. It's just fun and interesting. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, you're in Maine, right? So you have some pretty harsh winters and I'm sure plenty of time. I'm in, in, Ver winter. I'm in Vermont. Or you're I'm in Vermont. Vermont. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So close. close enough. I mean, yeah, <laughs> same, same weather. Same weather patterns, long winters, lots of time to drink tea around the fireplace and, and play board games. It's the thing to do. That sounds great. And that I'm going to have to look into that game because my girlfriend, she loves going out and going on a walk and bird watching. This so. is it. it. It's a great two person game. It's also a great three person or four person game. Yeah. So it's hard to find great two person games. So this is your, this is the game that you and your girlfriend can do. And you can, you can yeah. go birding in your, in your, over your kitchen table. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What about a, a book recommendation, Steve, what would you have for, for our audience? Well, I'm going to give you my favorite book and my favorite book is the Odyssey by Homer. And I've read, I've read it four times. And the third time that I read it, I actually read it out loud to my children when they were um, nine and 11 years old. And to me, the Odyssey is one of the most amazing books ever written. It's really a guidebook of how to live one's life. And I, my most recent reading of it was uh, about two years ago, there was a new translation that came out by Emily Wilson, which is amazing. It's, a, it's, an, it's an utterly captivating novel and poem. It's a, like I said, the Odyssey is an utterly captivating novel and poem. It's a symbolic book of a man's journey towards holism. It's a man's journey towards oneness. And it's a man who's made mistakes in life, gets off the path of, of self-realization, gets diverted, and then comes home. And it's all meant to be understood from a from a symbolic or metaphorical point of view, it's not meant to be taken literally. And if you look at it symbolically, it's a guidebook on how to live one's life. And it yeah. applies equally to men and women, even though the main character, um, Odysseus, is a man. Sure. Yeah. You're inspiring me to want to get back and to read that again. That's great. Okay. And then the third question would be a a documentary or movie recommendation that you would have for us? Well, I'm going to link it to the Odyssey. I love movies that are another retell a, re a retelling of the Odyssey. So I'm going to give you my first movie, and it may not be something that a lot of people associate with the Odyssey or an Odyssey-like um, uh, movie is Fight Club. But the movie, Fight. not the book. Okay. Fight Club. Remind me who the actors are. That is, um, that, well, that's um, uh, Christian Vale. Is he in that? No, one? no, no, not Christian Vale. No, it's um, well, it's it's not that I I'm blanking on who the actors are right now. It's yeah, uh, that's fine. But it's Brad. Oh, it's Brad Pitt, and uh, it's probably Brad Pitt's best movie. Okay. And and so that would give that as my first one. But the second movie I would give that's an Odyssey. Uh, also a retelling of the Odyssey is The Natural with uh, Robert Redford. Okay. 
or, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, is also the Coen Brothers movie is also a retelling of the Odyssey. So I love movies that retell the story of the Odyssey. Okay, neat. Yeah, I'm looking at Fight Club. It's Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. That's it. Great yeah. movie. Okay. Great movie. The movie is better than the book. Okay. Just that... like the just like the Wizard of Oz, the movie The Wizard of Oz is much better than the book. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out too. That's great. Thank you for those recommendations. Enjoy. Yes, yes. That's one, that's a huge perk of this podcast is I get all these great book, movie, documentary recommendations. Yeah. Well, dig, dive in and dig deep. I will. Speaking of diving in and digging deep, are you ready to dive in and dig deep with these questions? Let's do this. Okay, so the first question that we prepared is the following. When you say, I am not a neuromusculoskeletal medicine osteopathic physician, I am not an osteopathic physician who uses a single identifiable technique as my modality of choice, I am an osteopath, what does that mean to you? Okay, so let me kind of preface all this by starting that I will, during this podcast and in, in my life, I will interchangeably use the terms osteopathy and osteopathic medicine. Also, I'll sometimes refer to an American DO as an osteopathic physician, and other times I'm going to refer to us as an osteopath. For me, as an American osteopath, an American osteopath is a DO who uses osteopathic manipulation on a regular basis. For me, being called an osteopath is a compliment. But to a DO cardiologist or a neurosurgeon, being called an osteopath is considered an insult. They want to be called an osteopathic physician. So I know that way, the way I present this is not the way that the American Osteopathic Association prefers that we define us as American DOs, but I like the term osteopathy and I like the term being called an osteopath. My patients call me an osteopath. I like it and I consider that a compliment. Why do you think that some, let's say you gave the example of a, a cardiologist who is also an osteopathic physician, why do you Correct. think they would take that as an insult to be called in a cardiologist who's an osteopath, for example? Because that doesn't include the physician part of it. So unfortunately in the United States, osteopathy as a profession and the practice of osteopathic manipulation is dying. And it's dying very slowly and gradually. Why do you think that is? But, well, that's a different question. So let me answer the first one. So 95, at least 95% of all DOs who practice in the United States practice identically to an MD and you can't tell the difference. So I call those allopathically oriented DOs. They don't use any of the extra training that we receive. So really a DO has all the same training an MD does, and we have extra training in osteopathic manipulation, osteopathic philosophy, additional training in anatomy and biomechanics, and we have a, a worldview of looking at the body in a holistic way. So most DOs don't use the extra training that they receive, and they practice identically to an MD. So to call a cardiologist or a neurosurgeon a osteopath, they would feel insulted because they don't recognize that osteopathic manipulation is legitimate or is useful in their specialty. 
Okay. And I mean, it seems to me that the reason why probably roots back to their their education medical school and i've I've brought this up a number of times in other episodes of the podcast and other recordings where at least my experience in osteopathic medical school there was quite a, a disconnect between the systems courses for example cardiology and sure osteopathic principles of practice there wasn't a, a, an intricate link bringing those two systems or um, together. No. And, and so I can see how 95% of graduating um, osteopathic medical students would not use osteopathic or OMT, osteopathic metabolic treatment, if they are not doing a osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine residency or a family medicine and sure. OMT residency. Um, well, yeah. a lot of this is really political and yeah, there, it's political, it's financial, and it's almost not the direction that I'd prefer to take in this interview. It's, it's um, because there's other things that would be important to talk about. So let's sure. go back to another aspect of what this first question was. And you, you asked, you know, I'm not an osteopathic physician who uses a single identifiable technique as my modality mm -hmm. of choice. I'm an osteopath. Sure. So that's important because I actually prefer not to identify myself as a technique. I don't say I'm a cranial osteopath or I'm a muscle energy osteopath or I do counter strain or uh, I do myofascial release. I'm an osteopath. I do everything. And so I'd rather be identified in the totality of what it means to be an osteopath. I apply a clinical philosophy to a patient who comes to me who has a disease. And that clinical philosophy is based upon the philosophy of osteopathy. And it's not technique-based, it's philosophy-based. Now, when A.T. Still developed osteopathy in the late 1800s, he didn't list or give us or give us or list a set of techniques. What we now call all the techniques in osteopathy are based upon his direct students taking what he taught and then fractionating it into a more teachable system. And they broke it down into different techniques and then everybody started naming them. And then you could say, well, I wanna learn this technique or a different technique and then identify in that way. But what it does is it takes away from being a complete and total osteopath. Osteopaths, by definition, are holistic. And so we have to express ourselves, express holism in every aspects of how we function. That's why I don't use a technique to define myself. And so I even bristle at the term neuromuscular medicine. I don't like that term. It's because it's, it's not inclusive of what I do. Mm -hmm. I would rather say I'm a neuromuscular, osteogastrocardial, pulmonary, <laughs> nephroimmune, derm, psychologic osteopath. And I apologize to any system that I left out there. So mm -hmm. I would much rather just say I'm an osteopath. I treat everything. Uh, and is that how you understand the term holism is, as an osteopathic? As an osteopath, you're looking at the person in front of you as this 
unit of intermingling systems, the cardiothoracic, the, the renal, the, the gastrointestinal. Is that what you mean by that? Absolutely. The holism? You know, the heart does not know that it's separate from the knee. The kidney doesn't know that it's separate from the thyroid. The shoulder doesn't know that it's separate from the descending colon. The body is all connected. The body does not function as, as a collection of parts. The body functions as a unified whole. So for us to even say that we're neuromuscular osteopaths or neuromuscular osteopathic physicians from the AOA's perspective is, um, is diluting what it means to be an osteopath. So I think that the specialty that you're in in your residency should be called a specialty in osteopathic manipulative medicine because it's inclusive. It includes all of the systems, not just neuromuscular medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, medicine is, has become so, so specialized and subspecialized. And I mean, every system, it, it would take a, almost a lifetime to get to know the intricacies of it. And so my question then is, how do we, how do we know that someone coming in with, let's say the, the classic example of chronic low back pain, how do I know that what I am doing is influencing the nervous system or potentially the GI system or, you know, any other system of the body? Well, you don't know yeah. until you ask the question. You also don't know unless you're paying attention and you don't know unless yeah. you're doing a physical exam. So I see, so if someone comes in with low back pain, well, let me backtrack just a little bit. So before I went to osteopathic medical school, I did my master's in physiology and muscle physiology and did basic science research as a bench scientist in the effects of diabetes on skeletal muscle. Then, so I'm a, I'm a physiologist. Then I went to osteopathic medical school and I'm an osteopath. Then I did an MD family practice residency and mm -hmm. became board certified in family practice. So I'm a family doctor. When people come to see me, I see them through those three lenses as a physiologist, an osteopath, and as a family physician. And family medicine in the training process in the 1980s was very holistic and family doctors were considered the, the hub of the wheel of medicine. And that's not true anymore. We've become more specialty oriented. So when people come to see me, I spend my initial office visit is for an hour. And I do a complete review of all of their medical issues, everything. And so if someone comes in with back pain, it's shocking how common they have GI problems. Someone with low back pain oftentimes have constipation or irritable bowel syndrome. That's a somatovisceral reflex until proven otherwise. So if you, there's an intimate link between spine problems, low back and thoracic and GI problems. So if someone has a, a mid thoracic um, presentation of a problem with pain or dysfunction or, um, or whatever, I'm also gonna look to see if they've got GERD because because um, mid to lower thoracic problems are commonly associated with reflux gastritis, reflux and gastritis. So 
the GI system and the musculoskeletal system are intimately linked in structure and function and in dysfunction and pathology. And that's just, that's just those two systems. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example of a linkage. Every person with a knee problem, you have to look to the kidney on the same side. Really? Why is that? It's shocking how often uh, something going on with the visceral kidney is associated with a, with a concomitant side um, knee issue. What do you think that causes that relationship? That's a good question. Sometimes we know the answer to that and other times we don't. So the thing about osteopathy is we commonly, as you get more and more experienced in this work, we start to find associations and we start to see a link between divergent systems or divergent parts of the body. And when we see that, then we start to, now I start then, I talk to my friends, I talk to my colleagues, I say, have you ever seen this? And all of a sudden you get your, I'll get it, I'll be at a conference and I'll say, have you ever noticed that there's a link between the kidney and, and, a, and, a, and a same side knee problem? And they'll say, I don't know, I've never noticed that before. And then six months later, I'll get a call from that person or an email and they'll say, you're right, there is an association. And we'll talk about it. Why? I don't know why. I mean, I could come up with some anatomic reasons um, with the possibly through the association with the psoas and then the fascial elements um, related to the, uh, the psoas linking the uh, you know, lower extremity with the, uh, with the trunk. But there's probably other explanations too. We don't always have to know why an association is present. The goal of an osteopath as we practice osteopathy throughout our lifetime is to find connections and to find associations. Um, I'll give you another interesting connection. I mean, I could give you dozens and dozens. Um, SI joint problems. Steve, so, sorry, can, like, I, can, I, can I just go back to the knee and the kidney? Sure. So this is after you've ruled out, okay, this, this left knee is not hurting because of a meniscal tear or a collateral ligament tear or gouty arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or right. osteoarthritis. You've looked at all that already. Exactly. Okay. So that's a good question. So how often is, a, is a, an injury to the knee, an internal derangement of the knee, why does that happen? Does it happen because there was a trauma? Because they stepped, because somebody, a football player was clipped from the side and a force was put into it. That's a pretty obvious thing. But mm -hmm. most meniscal tears happen as a result of someone steps and they twist. Why? Right. I mean, when you think about it, there has to be some environment within the body that creates the likelihood for that meniscus to tear. And I'm saying that oftentimes it comes from a distant location. It mm. could come from an SI joint dysfunction. It could come from a psoas dysfunction. It could come from a visceral kidney dysfunction. It could come from a shoulder problem. So a meniscal tear, you may think of as they tore their meniscus. They just stepped and they, 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 they took a step, turned to the left, and their meniscus tore. That happens all the time with, with um, older patients over age 45 in particular. Was that a pure injury caused by an external event or was it the environment 
of dysfunction in the body that created the opportunity for that meniscus to tear. I mean, could it also be that the, the cells are just getting old and weak? But then how come it doesn't happen on both sides? How come it well, commonly only happens on one? So if it is all age-related, I mean, certainly there is degenerative meniscal tears. There is no sure. doubt about that. Sure. But how come people are commonly symptomatic on one side? I would think because of the, the mechanism of twisting on that meniscus. Maybe. Or it's the, the musculoskeletal, mm-hmm. visceral environment that helps to create the opportunity for that meniscus to tear on the right rather than the left. Interesting. That's so, osteopathy. That's why we, that's why the, in one level, osteopathy can be preventive. The a great study yeah. would be for us to take a thousand people, treat them osteopathically and whatever they need, and then follow them for, for 10 years and see how many people in a, in the treatment group versus a control group um, have a meniscus tear. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would th- actually argue that the people who were treated osteopathically will have fewer meniscus tears. Huh. That's interesting. I and can't I, prove it, but yeah. I can say empirically, I'm sure it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes our allopathic, um, uh, com- the allopathic communities, sometimes they, they wonder like, come on, you osteopath like prove that to me show me some research show me a double-blinded study you know and you're right i think we i think we do need to produce a little bit more research to hopefully hopefully communicate these these things that we believe and we have seen with our patients to the greater medical community probably not an easy study to do by any means but and not everything has to be double-blinded, placebo-controlled to be true. I'll also say that. I do believe that as well. Well, most of, really, when you get down to high-quality research, you know, the Institute of Medicine, did recent, well, within the last 10 years, has done an extensive review of everything that's done in medicine, in allopathic medicine. And only about 30% of what we do as American physicians actually has high quality evidence-based medicine. 70% is mostly based upon expert opinion or empiricism. Right. So in the allopathic community, if we, if I know they love to point a finger at osteopaths, but they don't want to point the finger back at themselves and apply the same standards. So I don't mind, I don't mind having, I I love evidence-based medicine and I do wish osteopathy and osteopathic medicine in America had more evidence-based uh, research papers and studies. But uh, I can tell you after, I can tell you that what we do works and our patients know that it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to the next question. Sure. You have stated there is no osteopathy without touching the patient, but you have also talked about the importance of non-material healing, such as healing the emotions, the mind, etc. Are these mutually exclusive or are they interrelated? Well, they're actually two separate questions. So let me answer the first one um, initially. So there is no osteopathy unless you touch the patient. It's impossible. Osteopathy as a profession does not exist without osteopathic manipulation. 
So I don't, I'm uncompromising on that. So if you're a cardiologist or a neurosurgeon, you're not practicing osteopathy. You're practicing allopathic medicine. You're a physician. You have a DO, but it doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you practice osteopathy, utilize osteopathic philosophy, and utilize osteopathic manipulation. So when you, when you talk about touching, you're talking about physical, physically touching the patient. Absolutely. There is no osteopathy. There is no such thing as hands-off osteopathy. Osteopathy is done as a hands-on approach. There is no, we don't do osteopathy with distant healing. We don't do osteopathy um, across the room. We don't do osteopathy across the country. Osteopathy is a hands-on art and science. Two questions for you. What about the the percussion hammer? You know, I've, I've seen osteopathic physicians kind of hover the per- percussion hammer above the tissue and see the vibration from the hammer going into the tissue and feeling those vibrations in the tissue. Is that, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I certainly know that there are a small subset of osteopathic physicians in America and the world who use the percussion hammer. Mm-hmm. I have taken a percussion hammer course. It's not a system that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. I have a rule in my practice. I never let a machine get between a machine or an inanimate object get between me and my patient. So okay. from an osteopathic point of view, it doesn't work for me. So okay. I can't comment on that Okay, because I don't use the percussion hammer. I have seen Robert Fulford utilized a percussion hammer when I was a student in uh, at a hospital rotation in Arizona. On several occasions, he treated babies with percussion hammer. It's uh, I'm not interested in percussion hammer, so it's, I'm not the best person to ask that Got question. It. Okay, that's fair. And then you talked, so I listened to your your episode, the first osteopathic treatment, and it was wonderful. Thank you and your yeah. wife for doing that. You yeah, talked yeah. about still getting into this magnetic healing. I have seen osteopathic physicians use magnets. You know, Fulford talked about this magnetic field around the body um, due to, you know, we're, we're made up of atoms, electrons, protons, and neutrons, and they're all just bouncing off of each other and moving, creating this electromagnetic field. What, what do you think about like magnetic healing? And, I, and I'm no expert by any means that I don't, do this. I'm just saying I have seen this before. Well, I don't use magnets in my, my practice. And I know there is a, a practice within alternative medicine that is not osteopathic that uses physical magnets in the magnetic field to treat various conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've not researched that. I know in the, okay. in the, in the 90s, there was a, a series of studies that were done in the just allopathic literature on utilizing superficial magnets to treat things like tendonitis and tendinopathies because it increased um, blood flow to um, superficial areas. And I did work a little bit with magnets with patients. I would have them get these like these elbow braces that had magnets on. I, I, it, they never worked. I could never get magnets to work in my practice. So I think it, I don't, I, I'm not sure there's much there where magnets by themselves as a physical force have a strong effect on healing. Got it. Now, magnetic healing is different than 
the use of magnets. So magnetic healing goes back to the 1700s. And magnetic healing would arguably be one of the one of the first forms of alternative medicine. And so magnetic healing was a form of doing a hands-on category of treatment that somehow dealt with energy or bioenergetics. And Andrew Taylor still studied to be a magnetic healer somewhere between 1865 and 1874, because he advertised himself as being a magnetic healer. And he, there was a, we have a documented ad in the North Missouri register of him advertising AT still magnetic healer. So the earliest aspect of what we call osteopathy was based upon this energetic form of healing called magnetic healing, which we don't really understand really well. It's, there's not a lot written on it. It didn't really transfer into the 21st century or even into the 20th century. So still took the basic kind of energetic principles of magnetic healing. He learned the art of bone setting, which is really high velocity, low amplitude thrusting techniques. He combined those. And then from that, he developed osteopathy. Hmm. Interesting. So magnetic healing was kind of part of our foundation then. Absolutely. We don't hmm. talk about it very much. And the reason why I included it in my podcast, the sixth episode, which is called The First Osteopathic Treatment, which took place in 1874, is that we've been somewhat remiss historically in including that as a part of our history. And I wanted to make sure in the first osteopathic treatment that I set the context for this is where osteopathy began was with magnetic healing and bone setting, and then still took that, studied anatomy. He was also an allopathic physician, and then he combined all that to develop osteopathy, and it took him 18 years plus of empirical study to develop what we call osteopathy and develop the first osteopathic school in Kirksville, Missouri in 1892. Sure. So going back to the question, and you talk about Osteopathy has to be with touch. What What are your thoughts about the fascial distortion model, which is like extreme touch almost? You know, well, I can't comment on it because I've never taken a fascial distortion course. So, okay, okay. that's fine. So, if um, when I take a fascial distortion course, you can ask me that question. Perfect. And then the second part of the question was the importance of non-material healing the emotional healing, the psychological, spiritual healing. How does an osteopath go about that? And how is it related to the, the physical asymmetry, dysfunction that you find? And sorry, I'm kind of stacking questions here, but they're all interrelated. You know, we're not trained in psychiatry. And so I always wonder... When I'm before a patient who I think, wow, I'm not sure if this patient is able to detach their existence from their pain. I feel like this is just something that they are attached to that they can't let go of from a maybe psychological point of view. I'm not sure how to address that I, other than, hey, you know, I, I, I would recommend that you see a... a psychiatrist maybe for some 
um, some behavioral health. And I don't say it like that, but. Okay, we're asking two separate questions and let me kind of give some background on the first one. So the second question though, is related to how does a person's emotions, feelings, um, psychiatric state influence um, their body? That's, that's, that's the second question. But the first question is about the non-material. Non-material healing is not, not about emotions. So the whole issue of the non-material I took from A.T. Still's writings, he had a very clear distinction between the two fields that he worked with. One was the visible, one was the invisible. The other was the material, and the other was what he called the immaterial. So immaterial has two definitions. One definition is not material or non-material. The other definition is not important. So I've retranslated immaterial into non-material. So when I, in my teaching of osteopathic clinical philosophy, from how I interpret Still's work, the material is everything that's objective. It is the anatomy, the physiology, everything you can measure. It is everything that you can, that has, that's, that can be scientifically proven. The non-material is subjective. It's not proven. It's, it's a part of the, it's a part of the living human being, but the non-material includes forces or phenomena that we work with that have not yet been proven. Some of those will be proven eventually, others will never be proven. So let me give you the examples of non-material. Examples of non-material are the inherent forces like cranial rhythmic impulse or the two and a half tide or the long tide. Other non-material um, fields include the health. Another non-material field is stillness or still points. So for those of us who have training in cranial osteopathy, a lot of cranial osteopathy is more oriented towards the non-material. A lot of muscle energy and, and fascial distortion model, as I interpret it, is related to the material. So what I interpret still as kind of wanting to teach us is that we need to always combine the material and the non-material. When I do muscle energy, and I do a lot of muscle energy, I combine it with inherent motion. How so? What do you mean by that? So I will, I will when I'm, let's say if I'm doing, let's take a really simple muscle energy technique, the piriformis, okay? We all treat piriformis contractures, right? Sure. So the patient is supine, the knee is bent up, you, you, uh, you, uh, with the knee bent, you adduct until you feel resistance at the piriformis. You have the patient push towards you um, away from the midline. I will have a patient initiate the push during the inhalation phase of inherent motion. And why, why is that? What's your it rationale? Works, it, it works better. Inhalation, okay. So when you, when you combine the material, and I always combine material and non-material. So if I'm doing direct action fascial release on a tissue, let's say I'm, I'm just doing a 
get like on the and quadratus lumborum. I'm alongside a, a supine patient, gradually tractioning laterally. I will traction laterally during during the actually will traction during exhalation phase of inherent motion in that tissue. But when you combine the material and the non-material in your treatment, then you're going beyond technique. And I believe this is what AT still did. He just couldn't explain it. Are so you calling? I teach, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so when I teach osteopathic clinical philosophy, when I teach my workshops, this is what I teach. And so are you calling the, the inhalation exhalation phase of the tissue, the non-material? Yes. Cause and, it can't be proved cause it has not yet been proven. Oh, we that there's a correlation. CRI. No, we have not yet proven. Because you've taken a 40-hour introductory cranial course, right? I will be taking one in January. Okay, so this is it. So what do you work with in, the, in cranial osteopathy? You work with the cranial rhythmic impulse. Mm -hmm. And with, that's, one, that's one, in, one form of inherent motion. There's many different rhythms within the body. They're all throughout the body. They're in the cranium. They're in the wrist. They're in the knee. They're in the kidney. Every, every body has an inherent motion that's part of the non-material. So you can work with that. And then that's how you augment your material treatments. Yeah. I mean, I, I have just experienced when I lay my hands, let's say on the upper trapezius on someone's shoulders and have them inhale and then exhale, their tissue seems to relax very much. Um, well, in that situation, you're using pulmonary respiration as an augmentation technique. And that's a standard part of all both direct action and indirect action uh, fascial release techniques. You're speaking when of I'm something taught, different. Okay. Right. Material, pulmonary respiration is material. Mm -hmm. The cranial rhythmic impulse or all of the other tides are non-material because we haven't okay. yet measured those. So what you're going to be learning in your introductory cranial course is you're learn going to be learning how to work with the non-material. Yeah. So I saw on, or I, yeah, it was actually on the osteopathic principles of practice physicians, Facebook page. Someone posted a functional MRI showing the expansion and contraction of the cranium in real time. And I was like, huh? I mean, that's kind of showing that the cranial vault is moving. Like that's, we're not making that up. We're not making it up. And is that enough proof to document what we do? Not yet. Not yeah. yet. Someday, right. I believe that most of the, what, the rhythms that we work with in the non-material eventually will be proven with the right scientific instrument. We just don't have the sensitivity yet. But yeah. I do believe eventually it will be reproducible. But it is one of the... When you learn how to work with the non-material... It makes everything you do with material techniques work logarithmically better. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that introductory cranial course in January. Yeah, it'll be a hard course, though. They're not, it's not easy. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, so what do you think about the influence of the mind on the body? And how does an osteopath navigate that realm? You know, what you said is true. The vast majority of osteopaths who utilize osteopathic manipulation on a regular basis do not have a lot of training in counseling. 
um, psychiatry, psychology. So all I can tell you in my practice is that the way I work is I honor that relationship. And I talk about it with patients. So I treat, I see people for a half an hour. So for follow-up visits. And sometimes an entire, if someone comes in and they'll say, my headaches are worse. And I'll say, well, why do you think your headaches are worse? Well, you know, it could be my job or it could be my husband. And so tell me a little bit about that. And so we talk about their job and their husband. And I haven't even done anything osteopathically yet. I haven't even put my hands on them, but I'm listening to them. I'm paying attention. And, and then after maybe just 15 or 20 minutes, I'll have them talking about this, letting them talk, me asking just really just open-ended questions, allowing them to explore whatever's going on with them psychologically themselves. Then I have them lie down. I may only do a five-minute treatment, and then I'll just help to give them a sense of what it means to feel holistic. And the treatment's done. But most of the officers, it was spent talking. So I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist, but all of us will do, all of us learn eventually how to do a lot of armchair psychology. And you, we have to learn how to do it because everybody has, everybody has a psyche and has emotions. And there's no, every single condition that a human being has medically has a psychological component. Every condition. Yeah. And yeah. every psychological component, component Every psychiatric component has a physical has a physical manifestation, so I always address the emotions. Now I don't spend an hour doing that, but patients want you and I to listen to them. They want to know that we're hearing them, and I think the most important thing we can do as osteopaths is listen to our patients. And if it means that most of the treatment is really is not hands on that's actually what they need in that moment. That's their necessity. And maybe I'll say, maybe I'll save the whole, maybe I'll save the hands-on treatment until the next week. I'll say, you know, we needed to talk about your husband and your work today. And yeah, don't, we can't, can't do the hands-on part. We'll do it next week. Don't you think though, that, that listening to a patient, and as you said, every patient wants to be listened to and are very appreciative of the physician listening to them. Absolutely. Don't you think that's part of that holistic approach to healing and is therefore very osteopathic? So when something is very osteopathic, it means that's, that other professions are taking the osteopathic approach and adopting components of it. The best psychotherapists, the best psychotherapists practice holistically. The best psychotherapists pay attention. The best psychotherapists will discover what that patient's necessity is, the best psychotherapist will identify what's healthy in someone and help to augment that. That's very osteopathic. It doesn't mean it's osteopathy. So what still wanted to do, and I think he failed, still developed, opened the American School of Osteopathy in 1892. One of the reasons was to improve the medical system of the United States in the 1800s. It didn't work. He created osteopathy as a profession, but he didn't really affect allopathic medicine. But mm -hmm. I think that very slowly we are influencing a lot of other professions. 
and A.T. Still was prescient. He was he was he really saw the future, and a lot of his his writings and his readings really talked about things way before they were ever available um, for understanding. So I have a lot of respect for Still, and I. I don't know why other professions haven't picked up more on what we do. I think we're not very good advertisers of what we do. I don't think we promote ourselves well enough. No, I absolutely agree. And I, I applaud you and Dr. Gintis for your, your podcast and, and getting try, trying to make an effort to bridge that gap and explaining what we do as osteopaths. So. Thank you for that. I hope so. You know, you're welcome. Yeah. And I hope that we really want to change things. We want to bring osteopathy into the world. And our goal with Osteopathy Unplugged is not just to influence American osteopathy, but international osteopathy, but also yeah. physical therapists and massage therapists and chiropractors and psychotherapists and hopefully some MDs who have an open mind. Yeah, there's actually... Um... I'm blanking on the name of the physician and I greatly apologize for this, but I interviewed a physician who actually holds courses for allopathic physicians who want to learn how to do um, osteopathic manipulative treatments. Excellent. So yeah, I thought that was fascinating. But the thing is, what, what is, is oftentimes missing in that is the osteopathic philosophy part of it. And so mm-hmm. what, what's happened in America is that we've also become technique oriented and we've, we teach a series of techniques and we think that the philosophy of osteopathy is biomechanics. That's not true. That's one piece of it. It's only a small piece. It's not the most important piece. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. It's not just biomechanics. It's the emotional, the psychological, the right. (laughs) the day-to-day habits of how someone is living. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Okay, Steve, third question for you. You speak about connected oneness, and maybe we've touched on this a little bit already in your podcast. How is this different from what is often called a holistic approach? It's exactly the same. So the term holism was coined as a word in 1926 by a South African philosopher named J.C. Smuts. He wrote a book called Holism and Evolution. But the term holism wasn't made famous until the 1960s when the alternative medicine movement really came into fruition. Holism is ultimately based on Aristotle's philosophy that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So really holism as a concept is really a law of nature. It's really an ecologic expression of equilibrium. So Andrew Taylor Still had dozens of words that were synonyms for holism. My personal favorite is connected oneness. But I actually gathered my list of these words, so I'll read them to you. Other words directly from Still, harmony, harmonious combination, mechanical harmony, complete in form, the universality of the fascia, the human body as a whole, the body functioning united, the whole system, the whole with harmonious action. He spoke of the whole body, the whole being, the common whole, the whole system, perfection and harmony of the whole body, united in form, man in his completed form, and normal equilibrium. Again, holism is not a theory, it's a law of nature. And in osteopathy, we utilize the presence or absence of holism as a diagnostic tool. 
So the opposite of holism, holism is disconnected manyness. So I'm sure that you've had this feeling. You put your hands on a patient and it feels like they're a collection of parts. And then we do this treatment and then we feel them again. And it's like, wow, I can feel that things are connected. So oftentimes people will ask me, what does connected oneness feel like? So if I can put my hands on the shoulder and I can feel the feet, if I can put my hands on the ankles and I can feel the kidneys, if I can put my hands on the, you know, on the SI joint and I can, and I can, I can feel the, the heart. I, if, if I can do that, if I can connect my attention, then my treatment has been successful. But when I first put my hands on the patient, all I feel is disconnected manyness. So how, explain that to us. So how, if you're at the feet applying some traction, how do you know that you're feeling at the level of the kidney? Is that just your intention goes to the kidney as you're tugging on the ankle? Not intention, attention. Hmm. Intention, intention will get you in trouble. Attention is healing. How so? How, what do you mean by intention versus attention? Intention is a plan. Intention mm-hmm. means that you have, you, you, you um, have this idea of what things should be. That's an intention. Okay. Attention means it's open. You're paying attention to whatever comes to you. So Got it. Okay. obviously you can use intention in a creative way. So you can say the patient comes into the office. I have an intention to diagnose their problem. I mean, it's a legitimate thing. But if I put my hands on the feet and I, one of the, one of my most common initial things when I, when a patient lies down, they lie down, I put my hands on feet, I apply a little traction. If, and almost rarely, I mean, I can, there's some obstruction I can't get beyond. And then I'll treat them, I'll go back to the feet. I'll treat them and I'll go back until I can do a light traction and I can feel all the way to their occiput. Hmm. When I can feel from their feet, the occiput, I know that the, that the treatment is done. So someone might say, Steve, how do you know that when you're applying traction at the feet, you're feeling at the base of the occiput? It's well, fascial. It's fascial. It's no different than, let me think about it. It's fascial. That's the most easy explanation. So you're wearing a shirt. Okay. You stand up, you're wearing your shirt. You pull, you have your, you take your left hand on the lower, the lower right corner, left corner of your shirt. You pull on a diagonal and you can feel the tug in your right shoulder. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm doing. Right. But how do you know you're not like the base of the neck or you're at like T10 or like mid back? Well, if I, if I do, if I'm using that, if I'm using that diagnostic, this is a diagnostic tool. So this is the way I, this is one way. I have dozens of way I diagnose. Mm-hmm. My hands are on the feet. I traction. I can't get, I can't get beyond L5S1. I can't see beyond there. I can't, and, and just doing traction factually, I can't get beyond that. That means there's something interfering. There's an obstruction at L5S1. So I go there and I treat that. And then I go farther and I go, oh, wait a minute. I'm, there, I can't get beyond the diaphragm. So now diaphragm area is comp- mid, mid, diaphragm's complicated. 
is that a psoas problem? Is that a is that a renal problem? A kidney a kidney problem? Fascial kidney issue? Or is it associated is it associated with the stomach and the gastroesophageal junction? I have to then determine in that midsection what's what's obstructing my ability to get beyond that. And then I just keep marching up the body. Now the only thing if I'm going from the feet, I'm not addressing the upper extremity arms. Mm-hmm. I can get to the shoulders, but with that technique, I'm not really feeling down to the fingers. I see. Yeah. Okay. So I'd have to, for, so for the arms, I'd have to go to the arms individually and have them connect in with the body. So if I'm going to be complete with that treatment, with the whole body, once I feel from the feet, I can feel all the way to the occiput, then I have to go to each arm to make sure I can feel into the midline. <laughs> yeah. I'm working with Dr. Grimshaw, David Grimshaw. He is a, he is a master of human anatomy and um, just an incredible osteopathic physician who I greatly admire. I've had him on the podcast a few times. I'm working with him now, and he, he really opened up my, my mind with an analogy that he gave. He said, Ben, when you're looking at the body, think about concentric rings. So if you drop a rock in a pool of water, you get those rings that are continuously expanding. Sometimes you want to think of the body like that depending on what the patient comes in with. But this is just kind of a general approach. Start with the midline, make sure the spinal mechanics are moving well, then go to the ribs, then go to the scapula, then go to the arm. And that should move as, as a unit, that connected oneness. And that, that was very, very enlightening, I guess, because sometimes I just go to the spine, make sure that segment's moving and then go to the ribs and look at the ribs just as an individual and make sure they're moving. But I don't, take a step back and kind of look at that global approach of how is the body moving as a unit? I love that. I love the whole concept of concentric circles. That's very consistent and congruent with the way I practice. And what's interesting is he'll always have the patient walk before he treats them. They'll walk down the hallway and I'm like, well, what are you looking at? He's like, I'm just, I'm analyzing what is catching my eye. What is not moving? Right. And then he'll do his diagnostic evaluation kind of based off of what he saw in their gait pattern. And then he'll have them walk again after he treats them. And it was just really, it's very related to this holistic connected oneness view of the person. Yeah, it was great. It was great. You know, I think that what he's doing is is perfect. That's that's, That's osteopathy. Yeah. He sounds like a true osteopath. I like this guy already. Yeah, he is. So he is. He is just an awesome human being and physician. So, Dr. Paulus, we, we're at an hour already, and we're only on question three. Do, <laughs> do we want to schedule another time, or do you want to keep going? I want to be respectful of your time. Well, there's two ways to look at this. Um, I think it might not be a bad idea for us to schedule a second um, recording, only because you actually want this out in the world for people to listen and an hour seems to be kind of this magic amount of time where people will listen for an hour, but they may not listen for an hour and a half or two hours. Have you found that to be true? Uh, for the most part, yes, unless you're super famous, which I am not. Maybe you are. Well, Maybe. I'm not super famous. <laughs> and so certainly if you're interviewing Andrew Weil or yeah. Deepak Chopra, People will stay on for two hours. <laughs> right. I, I, so um, 
I would be happy to continue on for a little while. And, um, or, you know, we, we, and we could, or we could come back to it and do um, part two. Yeah. I'll leave it up to you. Why don't we, why don't we come back to it and do part two and we'll Excellent. do the second half of the questions and um, yeah, let's do that. But this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you diving deep into these questions and explaining them from the perspective of your experience and your knowledge of the history of osteopathic medicine and having read still himself. So yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Why don't we just end with that? Because really your last question was about, and I'll ask the question for you is, why is it important to read the writings of A.T. Still? And, and I think that every, every osteopath, it would be, they would be best served to read Still. In the same light, I'm going to tell you, he's hard to read. Still was a, a terrible writer. He was not a good teacher. And his books are very difficult to read. They're written in a 19th century style of prose. That's very difficult. He's very tangential. And it's very difficult to really understand what his point is. The best way I can describe still is that he's unreadable, but he's quotable. <laughs> so what you're really looking for when you're reading still is you're looking for pearls of wisdom that he's dropping down, waiting for you to find. He leaves all these little, these little hidden gems, all these little hints, all these clues, all throughout his writings. You can find all of osteopathy and you could become a great osteopath just by studying A.T. Still's writings. Most people don't do it because he's, because he's so um, antiquated in his style. But I've spent the last 30 plus years reading Still and I, I, I get excited by him. And I think that part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to bring still back into fruition for this next generation of DOs. And I'm hoping that um, people will get excited about all of osteopathy, not just the, the biomechanics and the techniques. So I'm glad that you are excited about all of osteopathy because it's a, it's a big complicated profession that takes a lifetime of practice. Yes. And I'm, I'm slowly realizing that. And that's why it's been so great talking to so many different osteopathic physicians throughout the country and um, throughout the world, having them share their experience and their experience of most of them, a career of practicing osteopathic medicine. So, yeah. Well, thanks again, Dr. Paulus. Well, and we will have round two, hopefully in the near future. Well, you're very welcome, Dr. Green. And uh, it was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. You have a wonderful evening and send my regards to, to your wife, Dr. Gintis, please. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye Goodbye. now. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Paulus. Check out his podcast, Osteopathy Unplugged on Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Stay tuned for episode two with Steve as we finish up our question list about osteopathic medicine and philosophy. Please also like the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast on Apple Podcast and leave us a review. Until next time.